Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kion Wolf asking uh, during your podcast. I'm not sure what time you're listening to this, <laughs> but we're glad you tune in. We're glad you tune in. I hope every day, but whenever you can. So give us a call, but you have to support the show. We can't do it without your support. 1-800-584-2788. Go online at WNPR.org. And just like you made the great decision to listen to this podcast, please continue to make great decisions by being a member or renewing your membership. If you don't remember the last time you renewed your membership, then it's probably time to renew it. That's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem, but you're going to solve it because you're a public radio listener and that's what you do. So call 1-800-584-2788 or go to wnpr.org slash donate. And and thank you. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Uh, Welcome to the show. Um, Socialism is enjoying a moment, maybe more than a moment, uh, maybe uh, something of a boom in interest and participation here in America. There are a lot of things that play into that, a lot of reasons that play into it. But um, I think probably at the top of the list at this point probably is dissatisfaction with the results of the 2016 election. You can see that uh, in the 2018 midterms, too. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about it today. I think we did a show about socialism, I'm going to say about two and a half years ago, something like that. Uh, But things have changed. Some things haven't changed, but some things have changed. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy this. We're going to start with Bhaskar Sunkara, uh, editor of Jacobin Magazine, author of the upcoming book, The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality, which will be out on April 3rd. Reserve your copy now. Uh, First of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you for having me. So... So okay, imagine that I come to you, and this isn't far-fetched, imagine that I come to you and say, you know, I wasn't really happy with how 2016 went. I didn't really feel like the kind of change, the redistribution of resources, wealth, and opportunity that I think is necessary in this country was even offered to me in the 2016 election. And now, you know, let's say that I come to you after the Democratic National Convention, and now Joe Biden is the nominee, and I feel exactly the same way, and I'm feeling like I really just should be a socialist. First of all, how would I? Well, first of all, make the case. Make the case for me to do that. Make the case for me to switch my allegiances from liberal Democrat to socialist. Well, I would say that to be a socialist is not to be anti-liberal. What I want to do is I want to push liberals to ask deeper and more substantive questions. So, in other words, uh, let's say a country like India, where my father is 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 from. Uh, India is a country with a free press, uh, which is a good thing. It's it's better than the press conditions in China or Saudi Arabia. But it's also a country with, I don't know, something like 40% of people who are functionally illiterate. So the liberal right would be the right to have access to a free press. I think a socialist would say, yes, but how can you actually ensure that that people can really be full participants in the civic process if they, and in this kind of liberal right of free press, if they don't also have uh, an education, literacy, access to nutrition and whatnot to, to reach their potential. So I would say that if you want to go from being a liberal to being a socialist, you just would ask these deeper questions, not just about having the legal rights to things, but also having uh, the things to make these uh, a reality. And at the very least, at the minimum, in a country like the United States, that means having access to 
a, a good education. That means having access to housing, to health insurance, and whatnot. Just the the at the very least the basics. That means that accidents wouldn't be you know uh, life wouldn't be accidents of birth. And in so much of this country, it is. I feel like I could get those kinds of assurances from Elizabeth Warren, and she's not a socialist. Uh, to some degree, yes, and I support many of the reforms that Elizabeth Warren offers. If I could crudely distinguish between uh, what Warren is offering and what I think a democratic socialism socialist would offer, it would be that Warren kind of wants to fix the rules of the game where socialists are questioning uh, some of the uh, the game in its its entirety. So we're questioning, in other words, why uh, democracy is a good thing in the ballot box but not a good thing at the workplace. We're pushing for things like mass unionization. We're wondering whether we could foster worker-owned cooperatives, uh, whether we need our bosses to, in the, the way that uh, workplaces are run today, which is as, as, as tyrannies. Um, so there, there are uh, deeper questions that are being asked, but there's no doubt in my mind that a candidate like Elizabeth Warren is, at the very least, seeking to ameliorate many of the problems that are facing ordinary American workers. So I guess the next question, this may sound like kind of a stupid question, but let's say I decided you're completely right. Um, what would I do next? Would I leave the Democratic Party and register with the Democratic Socialists of America? Like, What would I do exactly if I decided I believed these things? That's, that's a great question. I mean, I myself has, have been a registered Democrat since uh, I turned 18, and I joined DSA about two months before that. Um, so why was I a registered Democrat if I hold these more radical views? Uh, it was simply because I grew up in New York State, and most of the competitive elections in my area, actually almost all the competitive act- elections in my area, were the Democratic primaries, not the general election. So to participate in politics, I uh, made that choice. Um, in this coming November, uh, if I was in a swing state, I would most definitely vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is uh, against Donald Trump. Uh, so I don't, I don't. You don't need to make that leap from the Democratic Party necessarily. Many of the most prominent uh, Democratic socialists in the United States, people like AOC, people like Bernie Sanders, uh, they're primarily running through uh, Democratic primaries. Uh, Sanders had an independent route available to him in state politics, um, just by virtue of of Vermont and Connecticut, and New York. We have the Working Families Party, in which many progressive candidates run, and so on. So I think the immediate thing would be to um, you know, engage with uh, your local Democratic Socialists of America chapter, um, you know, study the history of socialism and just engage in your, your workplace and your communities and start talking about democracy and start talking about how there's so much of life that is held hostage to your ability to pay that should just be social rights. I, I do believe that if not a massive majority, most Americans would agree with me that child care, that health care, that all these basics should be given to people just by virtue of being people, not by their ability to pay. And I know that's not the complete vision of socialist politics. I know that there are some other things that I'll question, like whether bosses should be able to run their um, uh, workplaces the way they please without um, employee um, kind of control and buy-in and, and, and shareholder stake that uh, most liberals wouldn't agree with, but at least on these basics, I do believe that there is already a majority. I think the support that Bernie Sanders is is showing, uh, the more limited but still real support that Elizabeth Warren is showing behind some of her more progressive uh, measures is, is a sign of that. 
So right around this time of year in 2016, I was covering a Trump rally, and I was here in Connecticut. And I was astonished to talk to a lot of these Trump supporters and find not all of them, but a surprising number of them. Okay, and keep in mind, so this is April 2016. The Republican field is still essentially intact. Um, Trump hasn't secured the nomination yet. That their second choice was Bernie Sanders, like the, their second choice out of everybody. So not Mario Rubio or Rubio or Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz or anybody like that. They're there at a Trump rally, but the next guy down the line, next person down the line they like the most is Bernie Sanders. Um, first of all, does that surprise you? Not Entirely. I, I think that um, they were both candidates who were speaking to anger. I think that the anger that Trump was speaking to was a bit of a ruse. He was misdirecting people's legitimate anger and then directing it to illegitimate sources. He was saying it's minorities, it's immigrants, it's whatever else. Whereas in my mind, at least, when Sanders was saying that the enemies is, uh, you know, big corporations and billionaires that are exploiting uh, people and not paying their fair share, that seems to to fit, at least with my worldview and what I see around me. Um, but both of these candidates were speaking to discontentment. And in the case of Hillary Clinton, again, a candidate that I would have voted for if I was in a, in a swing state in the general election, uh, she her primary appeal to people seemed to be, hey, listen, I've been in politics for the last 30 years. I know what I'm doing. Trump doesn't know what he's doing. Meanwhile, those same people were telling her, hey, my life has been pretty miserable for the last 30 years. I've been having stagnant wages. I'm not sure whether I can take care of my family. I'm not sure whether my kids will have a better future than, uh, than a better life than I have. And it just didn't really reconcile um, with uh, what we were hearing from, from uh, ordinary uh, Americans. Do you think that a socialist message really could reach some of those people who were Trump voters? I mean, I think if you scratch very hard at them, there's still people who kind of believe America is a place where you have a chance to get rich. You know, that that their discontent had a lot to do with feeling as though economic growth and post-2008 economic recovery had left them untouched, had left them behind. Uh, but they wanted to catch up with the people that they thought thought were doing well. Is there a way to, to, to deliver a message to them? I mean, feel free to refute the premise uh, of my question. Uh, maybe, maybe that's not who they were, but are they reachable with a socialist message? Well, there's not a monolithic Trump voter, just like there's not a monolithic Clinton uh, voter. I would say that in my view, and obviously this is a very crude abstraction, um, I think about a third, maybe a little bit more of a third of Trump voters can be reached. Mm -hmm. I think there are people that can be easily won over to progressive agenda. Uh, I think maybe two-thirds of Clinton voters can be won over to a more progressive agenda. And I think two-thirds or more of people who just stayed at home because they're fed up with politics could have been uh, a won over. And that would probably mean a 60% coalition. And I think if you're trying to build up really transformational politics, you have to at least target that kind of um, supermajority. Uh, you can't just get by with with squeezing by with, and saying, you know, we're going to be 51% uh, losers, which has been the approach of a lot of the Democratic Party. Uh, Chuck Schumer, about two months before the election in uh, 2016, had a very telling quote where he said explicitly that for every blue-collar manufacturing worker, ex-manufacturing worker, they would lose in, in Scranton and these other places in Pennsylvania. They would gain a uh, wealthy... Uh, somewhat more socially liberal former Republican voter in the suburbs of places like Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. And, I mean, we saw what happened with that strategy. Um, so, uh, you know, I think I want to reach people in good faith. I want to say this is what we stand for. And uh, I, I hope that, that everyone will be won over. Um, I 
think there is a core to Trump's support. Not most Trump voters, but there is a hard core of people who have very backward views that, that that are motivated primarily by racism and by other other things. But I don't think it's most Trump voters, and I also don't think it's most of my you know fellow Americans and most people I interact with every day. I think a lot of us just want to take care of ourselves and our families, and then want a better life, and don't want anyone else to be dealing with with extra hardship. I just want to say, if anybody wants to chime in with a question or a comment, 860-275-7266. We're live here at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. If you're listening at any other time, don't call in. 860-275-7266. Before I leave this ground, I do want to just get your sense. I mean, let me me set it up this way. I was um, a sort of a— token House liberal uh, in the 90s uh, on a commercial radio station that had otherwise all conservative content. They carried Rush Limbaugh, et cetera. Um, And at the time, I would talk about single-payer health insurance. And I mean, obviously for that audience, it's kind of a non-starter. But in general, it just felt like a very out-of-reach idea. And, And now it feels very well. It feels like, you know, I mean, very much within the realm of possibility. Are you seeing that? And are you seeing other areas where things that were just really, really hard sells even a decade ago are suddenly very much part of the conversation? Colin, did you catch the uh, the town hall last night with Bernie Sanders on Fox News? I did not. But I, so, I, I've read about it since then, yeah. Yeah, there, there was a great scene in that pretty early on when uh, the Fox host thought he was going to get Sanders in a gotcha moment. Mm. He had uh, everyone um, raise their hands if they had current uh, employer-sponsored uh, health insurance. And most of the room uh, raised their hands. And he said, well, you know, keep your hands up or raise your hand again if you would be willing to lose that insurance and switch over to a government-run plan. And just about everyone kept their hands up and started cheering. It was not the response. You could see the look in his face. It was not the <laughs> response that he was expecting. And even today, I, I have to look at the latest polling, but I think close to a majority of even Republicans uh, now support the idea of Medicare for all. So it seems like one issue where... You know, the common sense has really shifted just because the situation has gotten so much worse. I mean, health insurance premiums are going up every single, um, you know, year for people. Um, em- employers are, are shifting more of the burden to employees. Even if you have health insurance, we're dealing with deductibles or, or calling, spending hours of our lives talking to our insurance companies. Um, and it just, it's not that way in other countries. And I think that realization is really creeping in. And obviously, uh, Bernie Sanders has played a big role shifting perceptions on it. But I think this is something where, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if by the time something like this finally gets passed, maybe it's 10 years from now, uh, if there's some Republican votes, just because their constituents will be demanding their votes on this. All right. We're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to come back with more of this conversation with Bhaskar Sankara after this. We're talking right now to Bhaskar Sankara, editor of Jacobin Magazine, on April 30th, uh, his book, The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality, will be out. Um, You know, uh, I think for a lot of Americans, particularly maybe older people like me, we've been brought up with a lot of stories of socialist slash communist failure. We know about the Soviet Union. uh, Maybe more recently, we know about Venezuela. Um, How do you counteract those stories or or talk to people about that uh, as they say, look, all I know is uh, stories of this thing going wrong? 
Well, socialism has very different legacies in, in very different places. Um, now, there was tremendously successful socialist governments in Western Europe, uh, governments that helped fight for democracy, who helped create generous welfare states that actually took care of um, their citizens, um, that allowed ordinary people to reach their, their potentials, and, and also that, that participated in the democratic transference of powers and have really been staples of, um, of parliaments and, and of representative bodies in, in, in these countries for, for generations. Then on the other hand, of course, there were the experience um, in Russia and in these other countries where communist governments were you know, ruled as despots and authoritarians and just uh, replaced one set of elites with another and, and with really tragic consequences. So I think we could say that you know, the ideal of socialism can lead us in really positive um, directions that nourish and take care of people and, and make life better, or it can lead in really bad directions. So just like when I criticize the United States today and I criticize capitalism in the United States today, you know, I'm uh, not conflating capitalism in the U.S. today with maybe the way capitalism was in, in uh, Chile under Pinochet or whatever else. So I think we could say that um, you know, all political traditions, be they of the left or of the right, need to respect uh, democracy, uh, need to really value the importance of individual liberty and individual rights as far as free speech and expression um, and expression and so on. And uh, and that's our guiding, you know, um, a principle. We always need to be consummate uh, Democrats. But I don't think there's anything inherent, in other words, in the socialist ideal that leads us down a road to authoritarianism. Do you think, and, and uh, I'm not a subscriber to Jacobin Magazine, so I, I may, may be asking a very unfair question. Um, I'm wondering how good you think the movement is at telling its story. And I'll give you a, qu a quick example. I had a guy named Leo Canty. He's a former union leader here in Connecticut. He's retired now. And so as a project, he and his wife visited all 10 of the so-called happiest countries in the UN Happiness Index. And I, I don't need to tell you that, like, you know, five of the first five, I think, are Scandinavian and socialist democracies or something along those lines. Um, and so he was on the show and he was just talking about the people that he talked to, people who, you know, had jobs that maybe weren't like super jobs, but were really free to pursue happiness because of the things that they didn't have to worry about uh, under a socialist democracy. And I thought, wow. <laughs> You know, first of all, you guys should hire Leo Canty to just go around the country, go around the USA telling that story. I feel like that's a story I don't hear uh, that much from the American socialist movement. Yeah, I, I think obviously it's a young movement, right? Uh, and that socialism in the U.S. once had a very uh, rich tradition. About 100 years ago, there were cities in Connecticut. There were places like Troy, New York, like Schenectady, like Berkeley, um, that had socialist mayors even. So it was a movement that was around, but it's been uh, depleted. And, and now there's a new generation just emerging, and we're still just figuring out what's the best way to reach to uh, and, and connect with, uh, with people. But I think the thing we have to really say when we talk about what socialist parties and social democratic parties were able to do in, in Northern Europe was that, you know, these countries that we think of now as, as you know, at least compared to many of our lives in the U.S., kind of ideal, were once very dangerous, unequal, bleak place. They weren't even democracies, many of them, like in Sweden. And these parties came together and they not only constructed a democracy, they constructed a society in which your life chances were not dictated by accidents of birth. And that's such a radical idea that in the United States today, we take for granted the fact that if you're born in Fairfield, Connecticut, your life outcome is going to be different than if you're born in Hartford, Connecticut, no matter what, how intelligent you are, no matter whatever, whatever else. 
And I, I think about how many of our, our next Einsteins or Da Vinci's or, or even just ordinary people with ordinary abilities are not going to be able to reach their potential just because of you know, where they were born in. And that's not quite the case in, in other, other countries. And you know, if you look at childhood poverty rates and all these other things, I think in the U.S., even though we think of ourselves as, as the greatest country on earth, and, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly happy to, to live in this country, you know, we take for granted the fact that we have to live with all this uh, precarity and insecurity and all this financial stress that doesn't have to be in the case in a country this wealthy. All right. Well, uh, we've uh, talked a lot about, we've said the name anyway, Bernie Sanders, a lot and maybe not uh, allowed you to hear his voice all that much. Let's go to another town hall. This is a CNN town hall on February 25th. So what democratic socialism means to me is having in a civilized society the understanding that we can make sure that all of our people live in security and in dignity. Healthcare is a human right. All people should have health care. You can't get ahead in this country, in this world, unless you have a decent education. We have got to, as a right, end the kinds of discrimination, the racism and the sexism and the homophobia that exist. So to me, when I talk about democratic socialism, what I talk about are human rights and economic rights. So that kind of routes us back towards the beginning of our conversation, because that could be a liberal Democrat talking. He isn't saying anything that a liberal Democrat wouldn't say. So when does Bernie Sanders become a socialist? In other words, at what point structurally or ideologically is he not just a liberal Democrat? Well, I think he's far more consistent and ardent in his defense of those those values than, than most liberal Democrats are. But I think what really distinguishes Bernie Sanders is the fact that he's not just talking about these nice things that we could have. He's talking about the fact that, you know, there's a minority of people, um, you know, millionaires and billionaires, or if you want to use old socialist language, I think large capitalists, that benefit from the way things things are, uh, that benefit from your continued exploitation from the fact that your life is so precarious. You know, if you're struggling to take care of your kids and you can't afford child care, you're going to be a lot more likely to accept a, a low-paying job than uh, if you, you had certain social rights that you would enjoy in other countries. So... I think creating this polarization and saying that, you know, it's not just us all banding together. It's us uniting the majority against a minority in order to make sure we are getting from them the concessions that will make our lives better and we're getting more rights and more security. So I think that conflict, um, talking about uh, the working class as having broadly the same uh, desires or the very least the same same uh, demands for material security and talking about uh, a class of people that that want to um, stay competitive in the market by paying us less and treating us more poorly. I, I think that polarization is really what distinguishes Sanders as a, as a socialist in his worldview. So we're getting some interesting questions on Twitter. Let's uh, start. Uh, this looks like it's coming from uh, way on the left. This is uh, Edward. Oh, well, these things, they hop around on me. So American socialism often feels like a watered-down version whereby it advocates for more government spending on social programs, but not for workers' control over production. It feels more social democrat than socialist. Thoughts? All right, thoughts. Yeah, my, my thought is just simply, if you can't put the question of universal health care, universal child care on the table, these common basic rights, how are we going to put the question of more radical forms of democratic ownership on the table? I agree with you. My goal is a society in which 
ordinary workers control their workplaces. My goal is this this uh, radically democratic society, but you know we have to go with people where they are at, and we have to show them that well, in fact, politics can achieve victories. So I think it'll be many years before these things are are on the um, agenda, and I, I think that it's just it is utopian to think that we could. Um, talk about having an economy, let's say, completely run by worker cooperatives or things like that. If we can't have an economy where um, private health insurance uh, companies, um, you know, don't don't control, you know, trillions of dollars of our our economy. So, uh, you know, I think we we go with people where they are. We go with the popular demands, and we we don't uh, kind of just stay um, in this this realm where no one can understand us or or, or make um, you know these demands. Uh, uh, seem unrelated to their, their their lives, but I certainly don't reject that call. All right, so let's go over to the right. Uh, this is Robert, uh, also on social media. Um, why? Because they think they're entitled. Hold on, I just jumped again. Uh, why? Because they think they're entitled. They think freedom means free stuff because they don't want to take responsibility and be held accountable for their poor life choices. My taxes are already too high. I can't afford socialism. Thoughts? Well, <laughs> well, I think people are entitled. I, I think, I think to some degree, we are all entitled by our our basic humanity to, uh, at the very least, housing and healthcare and education and all these other things. Uh, uh, maybe we're, we um, are not all entitled to um, kind of lavish vacations, and maybe those of us who who get luckier or work harder or do whatever else, maybe there are certain things we're not entitled to. But at the very least, I think the basics people are. Are right to be entitled to, and I, I don't know what what United States this person is living in, but most most uh, uh, working people are working forty plus hours a week. They're trying to take care of their family. They're they're trying to take care of care of like elderly people in their family. They're they're trying to juggle it all. They're dealing with stress. They certainly aren't um, aren't lazy. And I question this. You you want to talk about freedom? I think socialism is really about freedom. Well, let's say this: if you're a boss, you're an employer, and you're uh, working your workforce 12 hours, uh, 12 hour days for minimum wage. If a left government comes in or a kind of Sanders government comes in and there's legislation that says, okay, you need to stick to a 40 hour work week and you need to pay the people more a living wage, you are getting your freedom eroded because your workplace, you're not, you're, you're being told what you can do within your workplace. But all your workers are getting their freedom enhanced. They're going to get four hours a day to do whatever they want, to sit at home and watch MBA, to uh, you know, go spend time with their f- friends and family or whatnot. Uh, that, to me, is also freedom. You know, freedom to not worry about health insurance, freedom to not worry about how you're going to pay for your child care um, or whether you have to take a second job and, and all these other trade-offs. I mean, to me, having some level of security is, is freedom, too. All right. That was very well said, and it's a good place to end, which is good because we actually have to go to a break anyway. Bhaskar Sankara, editor of Jacobin Magazine, on April 30th, uh, his book, The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics uh, in an Era of Extreme Inequality, uh, will come out. Uh, Thanks very much for this conversation. And also thanks, if you will now, I don't know how this fits into socialism exactly, but people are going to ask you to support this show. Uh, And so please do, uh, if you enjoy conversations like this one, if you think it's important that this kind of content get on the air, uh, or if you like some of the crazier stuff we do on this show, please call the number when they give it to you and listen to what they have to say. 
I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kyone Wolf, taking just a few seconds out of this podcast that you're listening to of The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, you can't listen to it or you choose not to listen to it during the day and the evening, but you're going to be rewarded for that because we're not going to be speaking to you as long about asking you to, to donate to the show. But we do need that support. We can't do this without you. So please give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online at WNPR.org and keep this programming going. Now, it's possible that while you're listening to this podcast, Betsy Kaplan is figuring out the next show. <laughs> so, <laughs> or so, not. Or not. Or please take a break for once, Betsy Kaplan. But please show Betsy your support. Show us your support. This is the way that you send us a message that you want us to keep going. They do pay attention to those pledges we for do. this show. And when when you call 1-800-584-2788 or you go to wnpr.org slash donate, you can write in the little box what you think. And they do pay attention to that stuff. So please give us the rating that is your membership by yes. calling 1-800-584-2788, wnpr.org slash donate. And let's get back to the podcast. Thank you. Today's show was produced by all of the workers who will share in all of its bounty. Oh, wait, this is public radio. Lily Tyson and I produced this show under the watchful eye of comrade Betsy Kaplan. Amanda Fish attended Communist Martyrs High School. Our intern is Seth Blair. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jeremy Corbin. On tomorrow's show, why we love comets and kiss our asteroids. The astronomy show live from Watkinson. And now, back to Colin. All right, so this is our show about socialism, the second show we've done about socialism. Uh, but things change from year to year. So in the studio now are uh, two uh, members of the, of the um, Democratic Socialist Party here in America, uh, Puya Garami uh, and Becky Simonson, uh, both members of the Steering Committee for Central Connecticut. Uh, and so, um, so Becky, I'm going to ask both of you this question, but let's start. We were talking about this during the break. How, how is it that you wound up joining the DSA? So I joined DSA because, really because of the urgent historic moment um, in which we find ourselves. Um, you know, over the last 50 years, an obscene amount of wealth and power has been concentrated into fewer and fewer hands. And millionaires and billionaires right here in Connecticut um, are prospering while the vast majority of us are really struggling to get by. Can't afford health care, can't afford child care, can't afford education. Um, and inequality, that kind of inequality is really undermining our democracy. Uh, but at the same time, you know, people in Connecticut are realizing that the way that the economy functions is not by accident, but by design. Um, and it's, it's just, it's rigged. It's rigged against working people. And people want a more decent future for our communities. Uh, but we, we, want, we know we won't get there by just waiting for the ruling class to, to give it to us. So let me ask you a question. This sounds like a frivolous question, but it's not. Was there a point at which you had to come out to your family as a socialist? <laughs> um, not really. Yeah. <laughs> you, there, just, you just let it slide? Or, I mean, were you raised in any political tradition or anything like that? Um, I, I was raised in a good uh, social democratic tradition. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but, yeah, my parents are, are good leftists um, from Mansfield. All right. So there was uh, <laughs> no real struggle there. Uh, Puya, uh, tell me how you have come to be a member of the DSA. Um so this is just uh, adding on to uh, uh, Becky's story. I joined DSA because I believe that democratic socialism offers a vision of progress for the United States as a whole and for the state of Connecticut in particular. Uh, my parents uh, immigrated to Connecticut from the Middle East. I was born and raised here, lived here almost my entire life. And let's just say it up front. Um, Connecticut is the richest state in the richest country in the history of planet Earth. 
Um, the problem today is not that we're lacking in wealth, but that so much wealth and power has been concentrated into fewer and fewer hands. So I can't repeat this enough because the ongoing crisis in Hartford is so often framed as just a budget crisis. But the real crisis, in my view, is that we live in a state where such extreme wealth and such extreme poverty are allowed to grow side by side. Uh, so I want listeners to consider, how can it be that the top 1% in this state are raking in millions of dollars every year and giant corporations are booming in profits, but we can't even fund services for our children or for people with disabilities. Um, we can't even pay a living wage to workers who are providing health care to the elderly and the sick. I think it's time um, uh, for us as Americans, as residents of Connecticut, to have an honest debate about what kind of society we want to live in. Is it a society where we constantly lower expectations, slash public services, cut taxes on the rich, and bust unions? Or is it a society where we finally begin to enact policies to support the working class? Let me ask you guys this. I, I, I wasn't thinking in this direction, but he's Puyo's got me thinking this way. But uh, I'll start uh, over here with you, Becky. Um, Connecticut kind of has certainly produced an AOC. I mean, Johanna Hayes, maybe, sort of, but she's a little bit more centrist. And it wasn't certainly the case that, like AOC or Ayanna Presley or somebody like that, she took out an incumbent or anything like that. I don't know. Does Connecticut have a little bit more trouble producing that kind of establishment challenging a voice from the left? I don't know if it has trouble um, um, electing electing socialist champions, but I do think that we need to be really serious about how we uh, build our movement here. Uh, you know, AOC is incredible. Bernie's incredible. These people um, have really given um, a, a voice to social, socialism um, on a national stage. But I think that um, the, the important work is about how do we... Um, how do we build an organization? How do we um, build coalitions that really take hand take the power out of the hands of the ruling class um, and give it to the power of the working class? Uh, in our chapter, um, uh, although we've only existed for two years, um, we've already um, gotten heavily involved in electoral politics. So in the most recent elections, one of our members, uh, Dan Fontaine, uh, challenged one of the most right-wing members of the state legislature, Craig Fishbein in Wallingford and Cheshire. Uh, and Colin, as you know, these these towns are not the most uh, liberal in Connecticut. Yeah, but, Wallingford isn't a place I <laughs> launched my socialist movement. Right. But, you know. um, but Dan, uh, nonetheless, uh, um, uh, was unafraid to run on a strong uh, working class agenda. Um, and it turns out that um, uh, thousands of voters in the area supported his vision, and he came just within a hair's breadth um, of defeating Fishbein. And um, that certainly isn't the last time um, that we are going to uh, promote our vision in state and local elections here in Connecticut. Um, you guys are young. I don't know how young. I'm old, so all young people look the same to me. Uh, that's not really true. But um, so I I'm wondering whether it is your generation driving the DSA in Connecticut. In other words, is this uh, in some ways you could even argue that, you know, those kinds of passions run freer and faster when you're young. But maybe you guys can just talk a little bit about that. Go ahead, Becky. Um, so, I mean, I would say that here in Connecticut, um, our, our DSA chapter is not only built by by young people. Uh, we're bringing together people from all walks of life, um, from across age groups, all races and ethnicities and class backgrounds, uh, really to just organize for a better future here. 
Yeah. What about that, though? I mean, there's there's even an old saying that, uh, uh, let's see, a man who is – uh, is, who is not a leftist when he's young has no heart and a man who has become <laughs> conservative when he's older has no brain. Or There's various versions of, of that that have been sticking around for centuries. Uh, I don't know. Is this a youth movement right now? Um, well, I think it's certainly the case that um, the youth are leading the way um, and, of course, higher proportions um, of young people support the vision of democratic socialism. Uh, but one thing uh, that I think Becky and I want to insist on here is that um, uh, we shouldn't paint this as uh, simply a youth movement. In fact, um, interest in democratic socialism is surging uh, uh, across the generations in the United States. And just speaking from our own experience here in Connecticut, um, our chapter uh, includes everyone from high school and college students to uh, middle-aged parents in the workforce uh, to retirees. Um, uh, so, uh, again, I think this is a movement that is uh, attracting a whole variety of folks uh, here in Connecticut and across the country. Is it also, I mean, there were times within my lifetime where to be a so, where, when to be a socialist would be to be in a really small minority and a minority that was kind of distrusted a little bit by the mainstream. I mean, you'd really be kind of painted into a very small corner. I'm assuming now, just with the rise of Bernie Sanders, AOC, some of these other politicians, and with the fact that your numbers are growing, you know, that it, you feel a little... You don't worry so much about being stigmatized, Becky? No, I, I think what's important is that, you know, we take a look at the fact that um, super majorities of Americans um, and people in Connecticut believe in things like taxing the rich, believe in things like Medicare for all, believe in things like uh, the Green New Deal. Um, but those are all just opinions that people have if we don't have organization and if we don't exercise um, our power through organization. And so that's why people are joining DSA. Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, yeah, I think uh, one one message that we want to get across is that democratic socialism isn't about building a tiny subculture on the fringes of society. It's about building a mass movement. So I'm talking about a movement of millions of Americans to restructure our society uh, to the benefit of working class people. And on the question of stigmatization, um, let's just be clear uh, to us. Democratic socialism envisions a world where everyone has the opportunity to live with dignity and develop their potential to the fullest. And so we believe that we're going to get there um, only by expanding the power of working class people to shape the future of our society and our planet. And that's something uh, that we think is enormously popular today. Bernie Sanders has been struggling a little bit with having recently become a millionaire. Is that a problem for you guys? I think it's important uh, uh, when when we're uh, DSA um, at the national level has proudly endorsed Bernie Sanders here in Connecticut. Um, we've proudly endorsed his campaign as well um, because we believe that he is the only candidate um, who is staying laser focused on uh, the real problem in America, um, which is inequality in all its forms. Um, and I think we have to focus not on Bernie Sanders, the individual candidate, but on the vision that he represents, on the issues that he's promoting, um, and to remember uh, that Bernie Sanders is leading a movement of millions of ordinary Americans. Let me play. I, I promised you I wasn't going to do it, but I guess I am. Lily Tyson, our producer, wants me to play this clip. This is from uh, Chapo Trap House. This is a podcast that's sort of, it's sort of bad boy some might even say dirtbag uh, socialists uh, and uh, 
But this is sort of a little less of the bad boy stuff and a little bit more raising an interesting question. Historically speaking, most socialists have kind of been um, uh, passive socialists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I get pa- paper members. Way. Paper yes. members is usually what we say. Um, you're always going to need more active people, and usually once every couple of years, you'll be asked to do something small. But uh, yeah, no, it's like we're not going to have a million super- people are busy. Yeah, I don't think people should be too neurotic yeah. about like you know how real of or not of a socialist they are, or like you know what. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, like a, a basic set of political values. and uh... Yeah, I mean, there's no such thing as like, a, you know, a, an isolated socialist. So like you probably should, if at all possible, like affiliate and, you know, at least pay dues or something. But like, you know, the idea that you're going to, you know, I think it was Oscar Wilde said the problem with socialism, it takes up too many weekends. Like the <laughs> idea is every, everyone is going to be like a, an activist is like, that's ridiculous. So... Becky, it's an interesting point that it's hard to have a mass movement if everybody has to be that committed uh, that it takes up so many weekends. So so what about that? Is it OK to be kind of a passive socialist? So I think, um, you know, to us and what the movement that we're trying to build here in Connecticut is, um, you know, socialism is not about having opinions. Socialism is about um, an analysis of the world around you, but about organizing and building um, building organization, like Puya said, so we can have um, real power for working people to advance the things that we want to see in this world. Um, you know, we people really know viscerally that individually they have no power. I mean, take, take the workplace. If you're in a non-union workplace, you are in a completely undemocratic situation for eight hours of the day. Uh, no voice, no, no voice on the job, no way to... Um, influence your pay or benefits. Um, and so, you know, it is only through organization and building uh, building that kind of movement that real regular working people can have power. Yeah, go ahead. Please. If we ever want to revitalize American democracy, then it's going to require, uh, once again, that millions of Americans get involved um, and take power over the political process, um, take power away um, from the millionaires and billionaires who have been governing our society for so long. It doesn't mean that uh, 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 all Americans then who believe in democratic socialism are going to have to attend endless meetings over the weekends, but it doesn't mean that they're going to have to organize in all the ways that Becky was describing. We need more working class people to run for office. We need more working class people to organize unions at their work workplace. Um, uh, we need uh, working class people to extend democracy into every area of our lives. Um, it's been great talking to you guys. We're going to have to uh, end here just because we have to go to a pledge break, which is sort of part of, uh, I, I can't really actually make a socialist case for, for pledge breaks, <laughs> but but just take my word for it. They have something to do with one another. We've been talking to Puya Garami uh, and Becky Simonson, both members of the steering committee uh, for the Central Connecticut De- uh, Democratic Socialists uh, of America. So if you enjoy this conversation, if you enj- enjoy hearing uh, new voices with new ideas or Uh, young voices with ideas that maybe you haven't thought about for a while. Um, Think about supporting this show. Think about making a pledge during our time slot. It actually does uh, give us a specific kind of help. Uh, Meanwhile, thanks to everybody else who helped to put this show together, especially Lily Tyson, who's on loan to us from the wonderful show Next, 
hosted by John Dankosky, but uh, it's been a joy having Lily available to us at least once or twice during the paternity leave of Jonathan McPants. Uh, and, and we may get one more show out of her, but probably not until May, I think. All right, so we'll go to a break here. Please support the show in the station. Thanks to Apuya uh, and Becky and also to uh, Bhaskar Sankara for talking to us today. Okay.